Hollywood Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. If you would, please take out your Bibles and turn in them in the Old Testament to the book of Ezekiel and chapter number 38 in the book of Ezekiel. If you don't know where that is, you can grab a Bible in front of you and you can, uh, that's in the seat underneath you, and you can turn in that to page 618 and you would be at Ezekiel chapter 38. You know, when people make predictions, even if they are gifted people and people with a great education, often their predictions are dubious and unreliable. And I want to share a few more of those with you this morning. One is a prediction by a guy by the name of Dr. Larder. He was professor of natural philosophy and astronomy at the University College in London. And in 1840, he was a consultant on building the Box Railroad Tunnel in England. It was 1.8 miles long, the longest railroad tunnel at the time, and it would go at a slant down. And the idea was that if the brakes of a train would fail, that it could go as fast as 120 miles an hour. And here's what Dr. Lauder said about that. He said, rail travel at high speed, like that 120 miles per hour, is not possible because passengers unable to breathe would die of asphyxia. And of course, we know that's not true. We have bullet trains today. There's a bullet train in France that goes 200 miles per hour and the newest bullet train in China, 302 miles per hour. Then another prediction by a Boeing engineer made in 1933 when they turned out a brand new twin prop plane called the 247. It carried 10 people. And here's what he said. There will never be a bigger plane built. Well, of course, there have been lots of bigger planes built. And I don't know if you are aware of the Airbus A380. It's a huge plane. It carries 50% more people than the 747 jumbo jet. Room for 850 plus people. It has shops. It has a restaurant. It is definitely a bigger plane. And then finally, a third prediction by Daryl Zanuck. You may recognize his name. He's the renowned movie producer and was vice president of 20th Century Fox. And in 1946, there was this new thing being launched called television. Here's what he said. TV won't be able to hold on to any market it captures after the first six months. People will soon get tired of staring at a plywood box every night. Well, not exactly. So people's predictions can be dubious and unreliable, but God's prophetic proclamations are always fulfilled with precise, stunning accuracy. We've been involved in a series of messages we have entitled Signs of the End Times. And while Jesus tells us that we do not know the day or the hour, the core principle that he communicated is that when you see the signs that are predicted around the second coming, then you will know that my coming is near. You will know, as we said last week, that the kickoff of the game is near. And there are so many predictions regarding the end of the age and the second coming. Someone has estimated that 260 chapters in the New Testament 
give reference to, in some way or another, the second coming of Christ. And last week, we gave three signs of the second coming in the end of the age. Uh, the return of Israel to their land, a reemergence of the Roman Empire, and an active embracing of globalism. And we pointed out last time that all of those signs have come true within my lifetime, after literally centuries upon centuries of time. Now, here's today's plan. We're going to do three things. Number one, we're going to look at a fourth major sign of the end of the age and the second coming of Christ, which is a coalition against Israel. And then we're going to secondly look at some miscellaneous signs, a couple of them, and then we're going to have some concluding thoughts as we end our series. So what we want to look at first this morning is this fourth major sign, and I'm not covering all of the major signs, just some of them, which is a coalition against Israel. And that takes us to the book of Ezekiel, and in particular, chapter 38 and chapter 39. Now, it's important for us to understand that the, the descriptions we're going to be reading this morning were written 2,600 years ago, 26 centuries ago. So just important that we understand that. Now, if you have your Bibles open to Ezekiel 38, I want to begin reading with verse 1. Ezekiel says, the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal, and prophesy against him. And say, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal. I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws, and I will bring you out and all your army and horses and horsemen, and all of them splendidly attired, a great company with buckler and shield, all of them wielding swords, Persia, Ethiopia, and put with them, all of them with shield and helmet, and Gomer with all its troops, and Beth Togamah from the remote parts of the north with all its troops, and many peoples with you. Look down to verse 8. After many days you will be summoned. In the latter years you will come into the land that is restored from the sword, whose inhabitants have been gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel, which have been a continual waste. But its people were brought out from the nations, and they are living securely, all of them. And you will go up. You will come like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering the land, you and all your troops, and many peoples with you. Get down to verse 14. Therefore, prophesy, son of man, and say to Gog, thus says the Lord God, on that day when my people Israel are living securely, will you not know it? You will come from your place out of the remote parts of the north. Verse 16, you will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It shall come about in the last days that I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I am sanctified through you before their eyes, O Gog. Now, as we're diving into chapter 38, it's important to have some sense of the flow of the book of Ezekiel. If you look at it, you'll find out that in chapter 36 and 37, there are prophecies about Israel being restored to the land. And then in chapters 38 and 39, there are prophecies about an invasion that will come against regathered Israel. And then in chapters 40 to 48, we have the millennial kingdom temple 
being described, which is to come when Jesus returns. Now, I I want to be transparent that there are some commentators who come to Ezekiel 38 and 39, and they would say to us, these prophecies have already been fulfilled. But I have a very, very hard time going there. There are time clues given to us in Ezekiel 38. Look again at verse 8. After many days, you will be summoned, here comes a key phrase, in the latter years. Look at verse 16 of Ezekiel 38. You will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It shall come about in the last days. I will bring you against my land. And those phrases in the latter years and in the last days consistently refer to the time that is directly prior to the second coming of Christ. Another thing we know is that these events occur after a worldwide regathering of Israel. We'll go back over it again. Look at verse 8. It talks about the inhabitants that have been gathered, the middle of the verse, from many nations to the mountains of Israel. Its people were brought out from the nations. Uh, Look at verse 12 in the middle part of that. You're going to come against the people who are gathered from the nations. You see, it's very clear that this is going to happen after Israel has regathered. And as we saw last week, that really began to start in 1871. And then in 1948, Israel becomes a nation, the first time they had sovereign control over their land in 25 centuries. They, they got the city of Jerusalem in 1967, and today there are 5.4 million of them back in Israel. Now, here's the reason why I want to look at this. This coalition is a startling lineup of nations. 2,600 years ago, God said, this is what it's going to be like. This is what a coalition is going to form just before I return to the planet. And we have a multi-nation force, and, and there's a number of enemies. We're going to show you how all this comes to be that are listed here. But those enemies are going to include Russia, uh, the Central Asian republics of the former Soviet Union, Iran, Libya, Sudan, and Turkey. So what we're going to do first is take a few moments to identify the modern names of these players because as they're mentioned here in Ezekiel, they are mentioned in the place names of Ezekiel's day. And so we want to try to identify who they all are. So look with me, if you would, at verse 2. It mentions Gog of the land of Magog. Gog appears to be, whoever that is, the designated leader of this group, but Gog comes from the land of Magog. And we know that the land of Magog was the area of the southern portion of the former Soviet Union. And we have a map we want you to look at, and uh, you'll see on that map near the Caspian and the Black Seas are the area that was called the land of Magog. 
And if you look at that map, you'll see that Kazakhstan is green, Turkmenistan is red, Uzbekistan is purple, Tajikistan is in the light green, then you have Kyrgyzstan and Azerbaijan. And that whole area is classically the land of Magog. What is, of course, interesting today is that is predominantly an Islamic area. Now, the second thing that gets mentioned here, it says, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, and it says the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal. Now, some of your translations may say the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, or you have three places, Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal, or you have the chief prince. The idea here is that this word that's translated Rosh is either part of the title or it is a place name. And translators don't have full agreement on that. Now, Hebrew scholars, Kyle and Gesenius, have stated that this Rosh is a place name. What I find interesting is that when you look at the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, which, by the way, was translated from Hebrew into Greek two centuries before Jesus, so it's pretty close to this time, identifies Rosh as a place and Gesenius tells us that Rosh refers to the Volga River area, the Volga River, which of course is a reference to the Russians. And you will know that the Volga River is in Russia. We didn't read it, but you could jot down Ezekiel 39.2 because it says something very interesting there about this group of people. It says, you are from, it says, the remotest parts of the north. By the way, in the Bible, directions are always from Israel out. If you ever have a globe or you see a world map, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to Jerusalem, and then you track to the uttermost north, which means, of course, the farthest north you can go. And if you do that, guess what? You're going to hit Moscow in the very heart of Russia. So we have Russia being identified here. In verse 3, it talks about Meshek and Tubal, who, by the way, if you think those are weird names, those are just two of the grandsons of Noah. And they settled in the area of modern Turkey. And uh, in that particular slide that you see there, uh, Turkey is, is way off to the west. And Turkey also, interestingly enough, today is an Islamic country. And then in verse 5, it mentions Persia. That's a pretty easy one. We know that Persia refers to what we call Iran today. I don't know if you knew this or not, but the nation of Iran was dubbed Iran just in 1935. Before that, it was always known as Persia. And then Ethiopia, if you have a New American Standard in the margin, it will say Kush. We know that Ethiopia refers to the Sudan and to Ethiopia today, what we call that. And, and there's a slide there of North Africa. And then put is mentioned in verse 5. All I'm doing is trying to identify the players here. And put, we know, refers to an area that is west of Egypt. It refers to the area today called Libya, which is in the green there, and Algeria, which is in the yellow. And Tunisia is the very small country in purple to the north. And then another player is identified as Gomer in verse 6, 
Uh, Gomer has long been identified with the Sumerians. Josephus, the historian, tells us that the Sumerians settled in the Galatia area, which is also modern Turkey. In verse 6, it mentions Beth uh, Togarma, which we also know is modern Turkey. So we have a lot of players named, but here's what I want you to understand. This is not an exhaustive list. Because in verse 6, it says, and many other peoples with you. In verse 9, it says, many other peoples with you. In verse 15, it says, many other peoples with you. In verse 22, it says, many other peoples with you. But we just want us to have a sense of this coalition that is coming together at the end times. And the plan of all of them is they want to attack Israel. Now, that tells us a couple of things. It tells us, first of all, of course, that Israel had to be back in the land, right? You can't have a coalition formed to attack Israel unless Israel's back in the land. But it's very important we understand that what what the Bible is saying, what God said 2,600 years ago, is this coalition would form and they would be strongly anti-Israel. And that's true of this entire group. Russia today is strongly anti-Israel. President Putin had, had pointed out many, many times, he said, the goal that we have is we want to deepen and develop our relationship with the Islamic nations at our southern border. In fact, he actually said this, Russia is determined to further enhance its relations with Muslim countries. We want to do business. We want to do trade. That's going to be our closest ally. Iran today, strongly anti-Israel, strongly, strongly anti-Israel, the number one, by the way, sponsor of terror in the world today is Iran. We all have heard of uh, Ahmadinejad, and uh, if you read about him, he's popularizing what's called the final jihad. See, the final jihad, they believe, is to signal the coming of the Islamic Messiah Mahdi. You launch the final jihad, they believe, and the Islamic Messiah will show up. And, you know, Iran wants to destroy, they've made this statement many times, the big Satan, that's us, and the little Satan, that is Israel. Ahmadinejad said this, Israel must be wiped off the map. Anybody who recognizes Israel will burn in the fire of the Islamic nation's fury. So the Bible said we're going to have this coalition. And this coalition would come at the time after Israel has been regathered, and it would be strongly anti-Israel. In fact, they want to destroy it. We've seen Libya... Sudan and Ethiopia named, those are hardline, hardline Islamic states today. We've seen Algeria, Tunisia, and all those various Turkmenistans, all the stands as we might call them. All of them are predominantly, dominatingly Islamic. Now, what is really interesting is just even a few years ago, people would have looked at this, and we saw several references ancient references to what is the modern land of Turkey, and people would say, again, you know, the Bible must have missed it because 
Turkey is a Western ally. I don't know if you've been watching the news, but Turkey, which has been a Western ally, has been making a shift. And by the way, this is why you have to have your eyes wide open when it comes to current events. Not too long ago, World Magazine had an article entitled, Switching Sides, Turkey's Embrace of Their Extremist Neighbors. Here's part of what was said. A major shift has taken place in the geopolitical or the geopolitics of the Middle East. Turkey, a strategic ally of the West and Israel, has effectively signaled that it's leaving its Western friends and reorienting itself eastward towards all of their Islamic brothers. And remember, what is the agenda of the coalition? Wipe Israel off of the map. That is the goal. You know, it's interesting. I want you to notice a couple of interesting things about this. Look at Ezekiel 38, and I want you to look at verse 13. This is just, this is fascinating to me. In, in verse 13, it says, there are some nations when this coalition comes together to wipe out Israel who are going to question that move. And you notice in, in verse 13, it says, Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish, which all of its villages will say to you, this coalition, have you come to capture spoil? Have you assembled your company to seize plunder, to carry away silver and gold, to take away cattle and goods, and to capture great spoil? In other words, what are you doing? What is really interesting to me is that Sheba and Dedan, when we go to the modern countries represented there, guess what you end up with? You end up with Saudi Arabia, which on the map is to the right in the orange. You end up with Kuwait, small country there in pink. You end up with Yemen, which is in yellow, and Oman, which is also in pink. What are all those nations known for right now? Being the most pro-Western nations in the Middle East. Now, isn't that an interesting thing? Isn't that rather fascinating? Second thing I want you to, to realize is these alignments, this forming of this coalition, just like everything else we have studied so far, has all happened within my lifetime. It has all happened in the last 25 years. What is the central core principle? When you see the signs, you know that my coming is near. When these things begin to appear, we know that kickoff is near. Now, the second thing we wanted to do this morning is, is to uh, look at some miscellaneous signs, and we could look at a lot of them, but I want to look at two of them very quickly. The first miscellaneous sign is worldwide viewing of an event. And we need to turn to the last book in the Bible, the book of the Revelation, in order to look at this. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. And this is the part of Scripture that talks about... Remember, there were seven more years given to Israel we saw in the very first message. We commonly call that the tribulation era. 
But these verses are talking about that final seven-year period before Christ returns. And I want you to notice in verse 3 it says, God speaking, I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth, basically for three and a half years in those biblical years. They're going to testify for God to the world in the tribulation period. Now, notice verse 6, they have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. Now, who are these guys? Well, we don't really know for sure. They're unnamed in the book of the Revelation. Perhaps God's intent was that we wouldn't know them until they appear. Theologians have speculated, some people believe these two witnesses to be Enoch and Elijah. Why Enoch and Elijah? Well, Enoch and Elijah are the only two people in the Old Testament who never experienced physical death. God took both of them directly to heaven without ever having died. Some people say, no, we think the two witnesses are Moses and Elijah. Part of the reason for believing that is that uh, it was Moses and Elijah. Remember when you had the Mount of Transfiguration and Jesus' glory was revealed and you had Moses and Elijah right there with the Lord? Some people think it's Moses and Elijah because of the kind of miracles that are mentioned there in verse 6. You see, it was Elijah who prayed and the sky was shut up and it did not rain. It was Moses who turned the waters into blood. So some would say that's an indicator. Malachi 4.5, it definitely gives us a strong indication that Elijah may be one of them because God says, I'm going to send Elijah before the coming great and terrible day of the Lord. So I don't really know for sure who they are. One thing I know is that they're going to be protected by God supernaturally. And then in verse 7, it says, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. Satan's going to be given permission to assassinate them. And they have given such grief to the world that their dead bodies, verse 8, will lie in the street of the great city, which is mystically called Sodom in Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. And those from the peoples, and notice verse 9, from the tribes and the tongues and nations will look on their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate, and they'll send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on earth the earth. There's going to be a worldwide party when these guys die. But what I particularly want you to notice, we went by it fast there in verse 9, it says, those from peoples and tribes and tongues, languages, and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days. This was 2,000 years before there ever was television and satellite communication. You know, it, it was never possible for basically all the nations of the world to view two dead bodies lying in Jerusalem until very recent times. 
Do you realize that you live in the first generation where that was even possible? A second miscellaneous sign we want to look at is worldwide economic control. And we see that in Revelation 13, in particular verses 16 and 17. This is speaking of the Antichrist who would come along in this period, and it says in verse 16, he causes all, the small and the great and the rich and the poor, the free men and the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. The Antichrist is going to be able in this period of time before Christ returns to control the world's economy. He's going to control the world's commerce. He's going to be able, think about this, to moderate and to regulate all financial transactions. And what is interesting is how quickly we are in the world moving to a fully electronic, cashless environment. And by the way, that allows for this kind of control. As long as there's cash out there, it's just impossible to control all transactions. It's amazing how we've gotten used to this. You know, we have ATMs, we have auto drafts, we have online banking, we have direct deposit, we have e-commerce, but it's exploding. You know, there's now articles coming out with titles like this, The End of the Cash Era. It's cheaper to do it electronically. On some levels, it's safer. You don't have all those germs, you know, you're handling all this money, passing it all around. Some people say, oh, that's horrible. How many times do you hear about how dirty money is with germs? And now we are developing all these biometrics that make it more secure. You know, you have the thumbprint, you have the iris scan, you have implanted chips, which, by the way, are already being implanted in pets. It's interesting to me. Two years ago, e-commerce via mobile devices, that means like a laptop or a phone, two years ago, one $2 billion of transactions. Within four years, they estimate that will be $119 billion. And within this decade that we live currently, they now are projecting at least 90% of all transactions will become electronic. You know, I was reading this week about one company who said, name three things that you cannot leave home without. Name three things. It was a survey they did. The top three things came up. Number one, cell phone. Number two, your keys. And number three, your wallet. Those are the top three things you can't leave home without. And what they said, our goal is to reduce that down to one. And the one is your cell phone. Their goal is to use our cell phone to replace our credit cards and, of course, our money, and to replace our keys. You know, there's already a name for this. It's called M-commerce. 
mobile commerce. And, you know, we're, we're getting into this more and more even as a church. We're, we're now actually um, getting this deal, which I think is called Square Trade, which you can actually plug into your cell phone and you, you, you can swipe cards. This is one way we're going to have for people to sign up for things. You know, sign up for a camp out, you can just be able, you'll be able to just swipe your card right on uh, one of our iPhones. Google Wallet is out there. Um, you've seen the commercial on television. Have you seen the commercial uh, where, I think it's a Chevrolet commercial, where, you know, the husband is in the, in the driveway and his wife is at the airport and she's locking and unlocking the car electronically. In fact, there's a, there's a thing called Lockatron out which basically is saying that with this technology, you can unlock anything anywhere with your cell phone. You're going to be able to remote start your car from anywhere with your cell phone. This stuff has exploded in the last five years. And all I'm trying to say is that for the very first time in history, the technology exists to truly control and regulate all financial transactions. Now, I need to say this very quickly. I'm not saying that this technology is, is evil. You know, it's not inherently evil. Money is not inherently evil. So, so don't just, you know, like, whoa. It's, it's morally neutral. But it is another indicator that the kickoff could be very near. Now, as I said, I, I wanted to end our time with some concluding thoughts, and I want to look at two different things. First of all, there is a promise and a prediction that God has given to Christ followers today, and that is found in 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, which is to your right, several books in the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. In verses 15 to 18, it is a promise and a prediction that God has given to Christ followers today. Notice in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 15, it says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another's with these words. It's a promise and a prediction that is comforting that God has given to Christ followers today. But secondly, there is a promise and a prediction given to those who cold shoulder Christ, who reject Christ. And it's a couple of pages to your right or a page to your right. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verses 7 and 9, this is a promise and a prediction he has given to those who turn a cold shoulder to Christ who reject him. It says in verse 7, When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, He'll be dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His 
power. A promise and prediction that he gives to Christ followers today and a promise and a prediction that he gives to those who reject Christ. And what God predicts and what God promises, he fulfills in precise, startling accuracy. Now, as we have looked at Scripture, we want to talk about very quickly some life response that we can have. And I'm going to suggest three of them. The first life response is to trust Him in the now. I mean, think about it. If He is so great that 26 centuries before, He can precisely map out the future, do you think He is worthy of handling our present? See, sometimes we just lose perspective. And I don't know what you're going through right now, but we need to trust Him in the now. And by the way, you know, there could be rough water ahead. Some rough times could be coming for those who are Christ followers. But we need to trust Him in the now. Second life response is to keep serving the Lord. Keep serving the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15 is the New Testament chapter on resurrection. It's all of God's promises about resurrection. But at the end of that, it says, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And that's what we need to do. We need to let him run the time clock of the universe. Our calling is to serve him and his kingdom. And that's what we need to do. Keep on serving the Lord. And then the third life response is to turn to Jesus as your rescuer from sin and judgment, if you've never done that. See, he took your sin, he took your guilt, he took your failures, he took your screw-ups, and he put them on himself. Your sin and my sin demanded hell, but on him the judgment fell. And what you need to do if you've never done that is you need to buy that. You need to trust that. You need to rely on that by faith. By the way, we have, for any who would like to pick one up, a little piece of literature called Yours for Life, How to Have Life's Most Important Relationship. And they'll they'll be available uh, as you go out of each exit door. If, If you've never done that, you need to do that. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for Scripture. We thank you for truth. We thank you for the way that you haven't left us in the dark. But we would pray that we would not be totally sidetracked. We wouldn't panic. We would continue to serve you. And for those who've never, ever trusted in you as their rescuer, we would pray that they would do so even at this very moment. Father, We would pray as your followers that we would not be shaken, we would not be moved as we trust in you. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.